So next, and I would like to invite each topic host to share <laughs> with us his or her experiences in learning and teaching of Chinese poetry. So Grace, so you need to leave by 8.30 Eastern time. Would you like to speak first? Grace? Oh. Okay, I have to unmute myself. Uh, yes, I'm very sorry to um, upset the chronology of presentation, but um, I, I, we have a very senior uh, colleague who had retired uh, 15 years or so ago, and uh, he celebrated his birthday uh, every year, uh, except for the COVID years. And uh, tonight is his uh, last um, birthday party before he moves into a care home. So I really feel that, you know, I should attend. So apologies again for um, for for having to well speak first and then to leave. And I would love to hear your stories. Um, and I can do that now that I see that the whole thing is uh, recorded. Uh, well, I don't have much to say. I, I guess uh, I can say that my, um, well, it's a, um, my story is a very circuitous journey uh, of a lost soul. <laughs> and that maybe I can say that um, from my own experience, there's always hope for uh, lost souls. Um, I'm, um, without going into all of the ins and outs, uh, I can say that I'm profoundly um, indebted and grateful to my uh, teachers. Um, Wing Schlepp at the University of Toronto, who uh, whose uh, seminar on Chinese poetics introduced me um, to Shi poetry, uh, and and that was the uh, beginning of finding myself. And um, uh, Professor Schlepp had said to me, "If you want to continue uh, to study Chinese poetry in Canada, there's only one." person to do that, and that is Professor Ye Jiaying at UBC. So I went to UBC, and again, with her seminar, with Professor Ye's seminar on Tsi poetry, um, I fell in love uh, with uh, Tsi. It's, it's, not, it's not intellectual even, it's uh, very much um, with that genre, uh, a, an affective resonance, maybe I can put it that way. And uh, so after I graduated, um, I've uh, had the opportunity, uh, really uh, grateful for that as well, to, to, to offer uh, Chinese poetries, uh, poetry, uh, both Shi and Si, uh, as seminars to students um, at McGill uh, over, over the years. So that's all I have to share, and I shouldn't take up much more time. And again, I apologize for um, having to to leave. Uh, I think I still have uh, ten minutes, so I can listen to some of your uh, your stories uh, as well. So, thank you and thank you, uh, thank uh, you. Say... Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Bill, please, Professor Ninhauser. <clears throat> sure. I... So um, I agree with uh, Y.E. that I really don't have that much to say. Um, and I'm glad that Grace brought up Wayne Schlepp because 
when I first applied to the University of Wisconsin, which is it's only, by the way, on neither coast. And I'm quite happy with the fact that it's on neither coast. Anyway, Wayne Schlepp had, uh, I, I had an interview with him, I think in 72 here at Wisconsin, and they hired David Connectus, which I would have done too. But I shaved off my beard to come up here, and then I found out that Wayne Schlepp had this huge beard. So that's the connection. So, gee, thank you very much for your kind words and for allowing me to join this illustrious group. Uh, lots of these people are more famous than I, and there are others I can see in the group who will be soon more famous. Um, so are we getting paid by the hour or by the word? Either oh, way, uh, I think you know, which you, which you prefer. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe by the minute. I'll yeah. have to check with, I, I know Heidi because she was very good about paying us. So I really, I don't know if I can talk about a love of Chinese poetry. I just love it when I can get an understanding of a poem or when I can get a translation to work. Um, I first studied Chinese poetry, I guess, in 1965 with Liu Ji at Indiana and with an engineering student. Um, he had memorized the Tangshu Sambajou. Wow. And most people of that generation could do that. I think that allows a kind of intertextuality that despite all the, um, the the electronic things that we have at our disposal, we really can't attain. It's a kind of mental intertextuality. If you think of somebody like Ernst Kurtzius in Europe, that generation could do it too. My teachers could do it uh, to a certain extent. They were mainly Wusa um, people, so they uh, knew a lot about Western literature. But I think... Um, Intertextuality is really a, an important part of the way we can read Chinese poetry, especially, let's say, Tang poetry. Uh, and I've seen some recent books. There's a young person who's joining us tonight who's written a book about Dufu that I think is great. Um, and uh, I don't want to make this into a polemic, but I think these de Gruyter books that are coming out are not sure how useful they are. I mean, we have Fonsac for Dufu, you know, of course, uh, the new translation is better, but pretty hard to read Dufu without some contextuality. So um, I really don't think any translations of Chinese poetry, uh, for me, because I'm uh, dense, I work without some context. Um, we did our best to read poems in that biographical dictionary of Tang Literati, that, which I hope you'll all order for your libraries. Um, but I think the key is going back to some kind of critical vocabulary, uh, even new critical stuff, just so there's some sort of, uh, I mean, I don't think a paraphrase gets at it too much. Even the Chinese ideas of qi cheng zhuan he for poems that fit that structure. Um, so I could mention some other books that uh, helped me to uh, fall in love more with Chinese poetry. Very strangely, you know, Arthur Whaley's book on Boji I thought was great, not so much for what the questions that it answered, but for the questions that it, it put there. I still think that's one of my favorite books. And I've already gone over the two or three minutes that I thought I would need. So that's it. <clears throat>
Thank you very much. Uh, for and the, thank you for your kind Nasa. introduction. Too, okay. So oh, next person will be Professor Yi Li. Yi, please. Yeah. Yeah. So I I really um don't know what to say. Um. um so I I think a lot of the people I know they they are taught poems when they're very young. Uh, you know, so they could recite poems when they were three or four or something. And that was not my story. Um, no one taught me. Um, it wasn't until I was about a teenager that I started to read a bit on my own. And um, I think I like, I have always liked Chinese poetry for being so portable, meaning you you can, um, you can commit it to memory and then take a long walk and think about it and really mull over it and... If you want to zone out in a meeting, you can recite it in your head, you know, all, all kinds of, they're, they're very useful. It, it's, it's, in comparison to some other poems, it's, it's easier to commit to memory, at least for me. And um, I, I like the idea of them being available that way, whenever I need to think about something and, you know, in relation to, sometimes not even related to the poems themselves, but uh I find it almost like a mental refuge to to be able to return to them and and then enjoy the sound of it, even if I may not totally understand it. Um, I don't know what else to say. Oh, yeah. So when I went to Princeton for graduate school, I did not speak a word of Mandarin. So when Professor Gao Yogong uh, taught his Chinese poetry class, Tang poetry class, there were really much more qualified students than myself and and he, he would uh just pick people out and tell and ask them to to explain what's what are the tone patterns of these poems and i absolutely did not know what he was talking about so i i told him i really couldn't take this class because number one i couldn't understand mandarin and number two i didn't understand what what are tonal patterns and he said to me it's actually really simple so he took me to the library and showed me this book um then that shows you how to um, figure out what are the tones in Cantonese. So, feng 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 feng. He said, just you know, recite it for an hour or so, and you'll get it. And actually, it really took only half an hour that night, and and then it, it was very simple. So somehow that kind of got rid of my mental barrier. And sometime in in due course, I also learned to speak Mandarin, and it was fine. And the course was fun and. Yeah, he taught me a lot. So many thanks to Professor Gao. I think that's all I have to say. Oh, and I also have to say, translating poetry is really fun. Even if you're not a poet, it it's like you you borrow the glory of someone who's a poet. And um, so no matter how feeble is your effort, it you share the glory, so to speak. I mean, you you may disgrace the poet as well, but you you feel that while doing so, you are. Um, sharing an attempt at glory, let's put it that way, not the glory. Okay, thanks. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Professor Lee. And so next person, uh, Professor uh, uh, Wu Fusheng. Fusheng. Yeah, hi, I unmute myself. I, I really, too, I didn't prepare for this. I don't have much to say. No. So about really my experience with poetry, Chinese poetry, I grew up during the Cultural Revolution. There wasn't much going on in terms of culture and art. 
So my parents made me memorize a lot of poems when I was small, you know, and uh, so that was the start. So this poem that I memorized apparently didn't mean much to me at that time, but they came back to me. And uh, so, yeah, I went to work in a factory because just to do cultural evolution, I graduated from middle school and then the university opened up. So I applied for English department. I was an English major and I fell in love with English poetry, but you know, my memories of Chinese poetry always came back and I began to feel that I really liked to both of them, I like to do some comparative studies, and that's why I came to this country to do a comparative literature PhD. And uh, so that is still my kind of hobby, my passion, these two poetic traditions. And so I, I now teach a course on Chinese poetry, and uh, I'm very glad to report to everyone that I'm using the textbook that we compiled together. So, yeah. That's all I have to say, basically. Thank you. And uh, it's very good to see really some old friends here. <clears throat> and yeah, that's, that's it. Thank you, Zongqi. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Professor Wu. Yeah. And now, the next person, Professor Kern, please. Yeah. Speaker, thank yeah. you. Thank you for having me. Um, and being, being part of this wonderful group. Uh, so my... What can I say? I mean, people ask me, why did you, how did you come up with the idea to study Chinese? And my usual answer is so that people can ask me this stupid question. Um, now, I really don't know, to be quite honest. I, uh, when I got out of school, I, I became a journalist um, and I worked for four years in Germany. Um, then I got bored um, and I thought I need to study something that is really different and really far away and foreign. And um, when you were in the 1980s in Germany, that place was China. Uh, nothing else was further away. Um, and so I simply uh, showed up one day at Cologne University and said, I would like to study Sinology. And um, fortunately, um, in Germany at that time, uh, that's how you would enter the university. You would show up and you would say, here I am. And they say, fine, um, you know, pay 50 German marks for the semester for your student fees and uh, show up for classes. So I did. And then two years later, um, I thought, well, there's no point in doing this here in Cologne um, in Germany. Um, so I uh, managed to get to Beida for two years. Um, when, when I started out, actually with my interest being in contemporary poetry of that time. So this was in the, in the I, I arrived at Beida in 87. Um, and this was a, an extremely lively um, atmosphere at Beida. You would have uh, contemporary poets that, whose names we all know, of course, uh, from that period, from the 80s, um, who would uh, give uh, poetry readings, or you had lots of students who would do their own poetry uh, performances at night. It was a wonderful time. Um, and, um, but then I had the great fortune of being introduced to uh, Professor Yuan Xingpei. 
um, I was invited to his home um, where there were his PhD students and one American student and one Japanese student. Um, I had no idea that the Japanese student would uh, later become my wife as she still is. And um, this is when I got uh, really connected to classical poetry um, as we were meeting in Professor Yuan's home um, I, I forgot, maybe once every two weeks or so, a small group of maybe five or six students, and just uh, talked about Tang poetry and six dynasties. I still can't believe that I was tolerated in that group because I was the most ignorant person by far of, of all. Um, but um, there I was, and then that's how I got started. Um, went back to Cologne, wrote an MA thesis on six dynasties poetry mostly, then a dissertation on Han dynasty poetry. And then every time I, I worked on something, I felt I need to know the thing that was before that thing. And so I had started in contemporary, ended up in, in Tang, then in six dynasty, then in Han. And now I'm mostly in Pritian. And I guess there's not much further to go for me. Um, but that's kind of, that's kind of the story um, before coming to America, having been extremely lucky finding um, some nice positions. Fortunately, at one point, uh, YE decided to um, leave Princeton and um, I, could, I could follow her uh, in, in, in what was YE's job and what had been Gaoyogong's job. And that's where I've been since uh, for the last, what, 23 years. That's it. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. So the next speaker is uh, Professor Su. Uh, hi, everybody. Uh, thank you, Zhongqi, uh, for inviting me here. Uh, when I look at your message, you said you want me to talk about how I fell in love with Chinese poets was very uh, worried i don't know what to say so because uh, actually very few people would ask me this kind of question i only in my memory i only recall that professor connectus asked me you know why why i am i was interested in in food and i had you know spent some time talking to him about this actually i i grew up in a, a lower middle class family in taiwan in a I was born in 1962, so probably 1970s. Actually, my parents were not highly educated, and they never told me to memorize any any poems. I I wasn't even aware of the Tang Si San Bai Shou when I was a kid. So actually, my father's only advice to me at at elementary school. He said he told me, "Oh, you should uh, read kung fu novels if you want to write good essays." So, you know, years later, I found that, you know, his poets were well taken because, you know, the, the novel, right, contains all kinds of, almost all kinds of literary forms, including students' poetry. Yeah. And in my generation, I would, uh, I can say that we had, in Taiwan, we had first contact with Chinese poetry at elementary schools. Yeah. So at first, I was actually uh, drawn to, drawn to the musicality of poetic language. Yeah. And I am all, I'm a word person. I like words. Yeah. 
I'm a person that would, uh, you know, read Hanyu Da Cidian, or you know, Webster Dictionary as as an entertainment. Yeah. So I found the language, poetic language, especially interesting. Uh, you know, besides it, it contains many layers of meanings, as I you know learn more. Yeah. But uh, first of all, I I would recite poetry, and and also like parallel prose, and full. Rhapsody in you know for entertainment in much you know, later stage yeah and I didn't know that recitation of poetry was a, a form of entertainment in in for example in the Han Dynasty until I studied uh, the full tradition with my teacher Professor Connectus yeah so actually I like I accidentally revived the old tradition as a young child that's recitation of poetry as entertainment. Now, I, I, as I grow older, I don't have much energy to recite poetry anymore. So I, I actually I switched to uh, listening to audio books, and uh, at YouTube I can also find a lot of uh, you know uh, people with uh, upload the recitation of Chinese poetry. I found that uh, you know very entertaining too. Yeah. So this is uh, my experience. I now I'm of course I have been a scholar. I have to teach students how to analyze Chinese poetry. But I think uh, just recite Chinese poetry uh, gives me more pleasure than teaching students how to analyze it. Yeah. Thank you. That's all. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, then it next is my turn. Well, uh, let me first say memorize it. It's kind of echo. Can you get rid of the echo? Yeah. The echo, the sound. Yeah. Well, because of the reason I'm not good at memorizing, because I did not begin memorizing poetry until a little bit too late. And even though my father was a professor of English, that he really did not spend much time teaching me anything, not like the parents today, because we got a family of six. It is quite a struggle to keep the whole family fed. So I was the, the youngest. Then I got more attention from my father in a way. Then he asked me to practice calligraphy. And this is the, the, the time I really laid down the foundation of calligraphy. Then when the Cultural Revolution broke out and I saw a golden opportunity to, to not to do any calligraphy. So the, the tactic I use is to write E, er, san, the easiest, and just to turn in the calligraphy, the, the homework. Then my father eventually got fed up with me and then let me go. So then I do not have any family uh, imposed uh, learning of any kind. So, but I did memorize the, the, uh, some poems, but those poems are not particularly useful nowadays. Those are Mao Zedong's poems. I, when Culture Revolution broke out, it was the fourth year. Then we, wrote, we learned by rote memory practically all the Mao's poems. And then in connection with this, and I learned a little bit about the Tang poem. It's not really until I became a college student. I began to really to read Tang poetry, Chinese poetry in general, more pleasurably, and then memorizing for pleasure. And my formal study 
of poetry came along as part of a part of my comparative project, like Wu uh, Fuseng's uh, 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 story. And, but the, the real serious training is the what I got from Professor Gao at the Princeton. Then he was teaching poetry in a way, in, in English language, first of all. And then he also opened up the, the way to look at it more analytically and how the language works, how the language generates a poetic pressure. That really had a tremendous impact uh, on me, on my on, on the on my approach to uh, to Chinese poetry. The two uh, volume uh, monograph, Chinese monograph, Yu Fa He Si Jing, is really a, a, a tribute uh, to Professor Kao's uh, the, the impact, you know, on my view of Chinese poetry. I after I graduated from Princeton, I thought you know I would. I would say goodbye to poetry for a while. I began to, uh, to to delve into literary criticism. Then there came the opportunity in the early 2000, and then to to realize my dream of putting a useful book that combines the finest scholarship and also good pedagogical uh, good pedagogical methods. So that was the, the rationale behind the design of uh, the How to Read Chinese Poetry, a guided anthology. Yeah, so I just need to to keep keep it short. Again, and I owe tremendous uh, uh, tremendous debt of gratitude uh, to my teacher, Professor Gao. Yeah. Okay, that's all I want to say. So, uh, so the, the next speaker is Luke. Look, um, hi. Uh, I just first want to um, thank Zongqi for inviting me to participate in the podcast. I'm a, a very much a latecomer um, to this uh, how to read series, um, but actually I've been a reader of the books since their inception. Um, and actually, I think the first book, How to Read Chinese Poetry, came out in 2007, which was the year that I began began the master's program um, that represented my first step towards uh, the, this current career. Um, and I had never before that studied Chinese poetry kind of in any formal way. I just read uh, David Hawke's Little Primer of Dufu. Um, uh, when I was kind of self-studying in Beijing. And I was an English and a philosophy major in college, uh, having basically the only um, exposure I'd had to any Chinese material was reading the Zhuangzi um, in a freshman introduction to the humanities course. So when I read How to Read Chinese Poetry, um, it I really had no idea how to read Chinese poetry. Uh, and it was... Uh, kind of a lifeline for me because I had showed up at Harvard and I was supposed to be working with Steve Owen um, and I felt like a real imposter, um, you know, having kind of no background. Uh, and so it was, a, it, was a, it was a formative book for me, a real introduction to the field um, that met me where I was and gave me a glimpse of what it was that scholars of Chinese poetry actually did. Um, so, uh, 
I was really excited when Zongchi um, invited me to contribute to these podcasts, because um, partly because it was fun to think about how to work in a different medium. I've never done a podcast before, although my students um, every semester ask me if they can do a podcast instead of a final paper. Um, I had never really thought about uh, what it takes to communicate in this form as opposed to on the page. Um, uh, and also, you know, most in my in my short career, most of what I've written is just exclusively for scholars. And um, though I tried to write uh, my monograph in a way that I thought my wife and my friends and family would be able to read it, um, it has sat on nightstands and bookshelves. And as far as I know, no one has ever made it through the introduction. So uh, the podcasts have been um, better than that in, in a lot of ways. I've, I've actually received, um, I think it's probably seven or eight emails from people um, all over uh, various different levels of interest in Chinese poetry who've written to ask me follow-up questions or to, you know, try to get more information. Um, and most of the people who've written me haven't been professionals, which signals to me that the series has really been doing what it's supposed to do. Um, so it's been, it's been really fun. And I, I hope, um, that if this goes forward and, and YouTube videos are made, um, that will that will be another way to reach a different audience. Um, so just let me say thanks to Zongqi for all your work organizing and to the staff um, of Lingnan University for making the series possible. Um, and thanks also to all the other podcasters for your uh, fascinating podcasts. I've listened to them all. I've really enjoyed listening to everyone. Um, and so I'm kind of still learning how to read Chinese poetry. There's lots of genres out there that, um, you know, I, I feel like I learned a lot actually from listening to this. So um, yeah, just very briefly. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you for your oh, kind words. About yeah, the, let me, let me just, the program. I just, yeah. just want to apologize. I will have to leave fairly early again, um, just to apologize to everyone. We have a newborn at home. So well, as soon as the, the crying starts, I probably have to um, uh, sign off. So okay. uh, it was really nice to see everybody, and thanks uh, for having me. Thank you very much for squeezing time uh, to attend the event and then say hello to the baby. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah. So next, I would like to invite Charles, uh, Professor Egan, Professor Charles Egan, uh, to speak, to share with us uh, his experience of learning Chinese poetry. Yeah, please. Charles. Well, thank you. Uh, thanks very much, Zongqi, for the invitation. And it's also lovely to see all of you uh, uh, here. And uh, also, congratulations, Lucas. Uh, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing to hear. Um, uh, actually, like Martin, you know, I'm often asked, I'm, I'm asked all the time, you know, how did I, why did I get into Chinese? And I, uh, but I have a pretty good answer. I could just, I just say chance because, because, you know, I was like uh, a, uh, just a kid in, kid in the suburbs of Los Angeles. And I didn't have any particular interest in Asia, um, although I had an intrepid aunt who was in the um, USIS and was off in Korea and Japan. She would send us trinkets and things like that. that they were pretty cool. Uh, but uh, but uh, I, I had no particular you know, interest in, in Asia. 
But then I had the opportunity when I was 16 to be a exchange student. And I went and I and I, you know, I went off to Bangkok, Thailand for a year where I lived with a Chinese Thai family. Uh, huge, you know, like three generations in one house. There were 16 of us, I think. And it was just a, a, a totally transformative experience. Um, and partly because it was just also novel over there, you know, just being in a new culture. If you want to, if you want to rec- uh, look, take a look at what I remember, go see the uh, Jane, old James Bond movie, Man with a Golden Gun. It was filmed about the same time. Uh, and, uh, but, 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 uh, but it was uh, uh, culturally fascinating, uh, but also just emotionally rewarding because the my 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 Chinese Thai family there were just such wonderful people. You know, it's close to fifty years, and we're still in close touch. Um, and uh, and so you know, when I uh, um, you know finished that year and came back to the states to start uh, college, I started doing Chinese then. So. You know, it was, it really is sort of, it's, it sort of transformed the whole, whole um, uh, root of my life. Um, I didn't do classical um, and, and Chinese poetry at college. I was a Chinese studies major. That was sort of like a lukewarm or, or watered down version of a Chinese major. Uh, but I did afterwards. I, you know, I, I was two years in Hong Kong um, teaching English at Chinese University. Um, uh, uh, and um, learned a little bit of Cantonese, you know, Sikong Siu Siu. But then, and then, uh, uh, and then I went back to Thai, and then I was in Taiwan four years altogether. And you know, um, you know, another emotional thing is Hong Kong and Taiwan are just were just such wonderful places in those days uh, to be. That um, that uh, I was really, you know, that really gave me a lot of impetus to continue. When I was in Taiwan, I was I, I started doing a lot of reading of, of Chinese poetry, um, both both shi and si, um, uh, on my own and then with tutors. Um, so I was sort of doing it sort of in a haphazard way. But I really I really was at first struck by, I think, uh, as uh, I think Grace said, um, by si poetry uh, in a really an emotional way, you know, that sort of stopping, stop this uh, uh, start and stop kind of rhythm of which just just sort of felt like human emotion to me, you know, like you know. Um, 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 so, uh, so, 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 to make a long story short, then I uh, came back to, uh, to to graduate school where uh, Tsai Zhongxi and I were Tongban Tongxue, you know, under studying under. Uh, under Professor Gao, and we were only a year behind uh, Lei Waiyi uh, there, I think, at the time too. And so that it was, you know, of course, you know, we're all we're all trained in that Princeton way, and um, and you know, everything I'd done ever ever since in in the research side of things, I owe to Professor Gao, um, and uh, that's about that's about what I have to say. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So uh, next, uh, I would like to y- invite and Dr. Andrew Merritt to share with the experience of uh, reading Tang poetry uh, and using Tang poetry as a rich source of inspiration for producing American folk music and country music. Thank you. I feel I feel so overwhelmed to be here in the august company of people who are so far above what I can offer. Um, 
Thank you so much, Professor, for inviting me to be part of your project in a variety of ways. I'm just at my first small, tiniest step of involvement in and appreciation of the Chinese poetry. And I come to it as a musician with an active intellectual life who reads a lot of world literature. And I just stumbled a few years ago upon some translations of Chinese poetry, and they just struck my heart so much. I kept getting translation after translation, comparing different translations, reading about the culture, reading about the history, reading about the interesting lives of the poets and their troubles and struggles in life. And I had this idea that I would like to find a way to relate to that poetry some way by using it as a source of inspiration for some original songwriting of my own. And that kind of kept me going on this path. And then at a party, an alumni party for my college, I met a classmate of mine from back in college whose son was a had become a trained scholar of Chinese literature. I don't think that's what his current academic appointment is. But I asked her, I said, you know, I feel so inadequate to deal with these poems because I don't actually read Chinese. And I'm thinking of studying Mandarin or Middle Chinese and being able to approach this in some way other than just reflecting on the beautiful translations that I can read. And she put her hand on my shoulder and gave me a little tap and said, Andrew, I think you should keep studying your music. That's a little beyond you. <laughs> so I don't know if that was good advice or misleading advice, but it was part of my encouragement to keep working on my music and writing my songs. And now that I finished some of my song project, perhaps they will be follow-ups. Um, I certainly welcome advice from anyone anywhere in the world on whether a older person in America who is not trained in the Chinese language can actually successfully learn enough Middle Chinese or Mandarin or whatever to interact with the poems on their original level in a different way. I will say that one thing I found particularly striking to me about the podcast series was how much I enjoyed hearing the poems read in Mandarin or sometimes I think in Cantonese and occasionally with references to Middle Chinese. And even though I did not understand the language, I could follow along with the pinyin and try to repeat the pinyin pronunciations. It really helped me understand what the points that the scholars, were, that you scholars were making about the rhythms and the rhyme structure and some of the formal aspects of this that were far beyond what I'd gotten from the translations. And even though I was not following in an understanding way, the Mandarin, that was really very useful for me to hear the poems actually read and articulated that way. And perhaps I can take another step along that journey. It's been so wonderful to be involved in the podcast. It has fulfilled my interest in building bridges and reaching across cultures. I've had such wonderful interactions. Um, Lucas Bender, I think, mentioned before that he has been, received inquiries from the internet. I don't remember if Professor Bender is one who I had written to, I think perhaps so, but I have certainly sent off some emails to various scholars participating in this program saying, oh, could you explain this line to me? Or when Heidi had kindly asked me to read some narrations in the Engl of English translations for the program, I would ask sometimes for guidance on what is the emotional meaning of this line. Is it meant in an ironic way, in a sincere way, and so on. So I have so much enjoyed interacting with you. And I have sometimes gotten emails now from around the world from people. Um, recently, I mentioned this to Zhang Xi um, from a woman, some of you may know, I Zhang Xi does, um, Sarah Schneewind, 
who is a professor who I think specializes in the Ming Dynasty politics, especially on the local level of politics. And she approached me and said, oh, she is so interested in the poetry and also in American roots music. And would I take one of her translations that she had done and present it and record it myself in a particular way, reflecting a particular period of American roots music. And I had so much fun doing that with her and for her. And perhaps the future will bring more opportunities like that. So what can I say? Thank you very much. I really appreciate being here in this community with all of you. And thank you for all your contributions. I'm not sure that I could pass a test matching the particular scholar's name with the individual unit that each of you had presented on. But I assure you that I've listened with great interest and attention to every single podcast episode and plan to go back and listen again and draw it more into my interior life. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think your participation, also John's and Jonathan's, really have given a, quite a different dimension to the podcast. And very much we value your contribution. So next, I would like to invite Mr. Tom Johnson to share his experience of lifelong engagement with Gu Qin in conjunction with Chinese poetry. Yeah. John. Uh, <clears throat> thank you. Thank you very much. I feel very, I'm happy to be here. Is my voice coming through? Yes. Uh, I got, I, my, I studied early Western music in college, nothing to do with Asia. Uh, but my senior year, I happened to read um, Reichauer Fairbank, Introduction to Asia, where he asked, why, why would an American be interested in, in Asia? And there were basically two answers. One was, uh, it's important, so you should really know about it. And the other is, if you want to know about yourself, uh, a good way to do is to get outside of your own culture and see yourself the way, way, way other cultures see you. And I think that sort of spurred me on in terms of, of Asia and then China in particular, because I guess it was basically, basically the biggest place. But I was also, uh, I got interested in, in Chinese music, particularly the Guqin, because I was doing early Western music. And this is the way to go, do early Chinese music, uh, because that's, there's a written tradition. <clears throat> and so for the last uh, almost 50 years, I've been playing Qin and um, trying to do it in a historically informed manner, which means playing with silk strings. Uh, most people today in China use metal strings and uh, try to play music from an ancient repertoire. And my focus originally was on instrumental pieces. I would read poems and so forth for inspiration, uh, usually translations, but also sometimes trying to work them out myself uh, for inspiration on, on, on the themes of melodies. And then, and then maybe about uh, 15 years ago, I started doing Qin songs. Uh, I mean, I'd done a few, but then I started, uh, I guess I'd, I was sort of working my way through the Ming Dynasty and then a later Ming Dynasty, there were more settings for Qin songs. And um, so I started doing those and I found that um, it made it a lot more fun to try to do translations because many of the songs that I was doing had not been translated. And it also <clears throat> really made the music come alive uh, for me um, to pair the music and the words. And as 
as examples, for example, uh, I had I had done a piece called Song of Wen Wenwang, Wenwang Chu that that is set to three poems from the Shi Jing later poems about the uh, let's see, I don't know what it's called. I can't remember these things. Uh, da Ming, Mian, uh, and Yue Fu uh, about the the foundations of the uh, Zhou Dynasty, and I I had in in translating the uh, and, and reconstructing the music, I had um, looked at the words to see how they would perhaps affect, perhaps affect the rhythms that I would choose when playing. But then I found that these these words just really came alive when set to music. Uh, I could imagine the 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 Joe people chop 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 chopping wood and riding their horses and stuff like this to the music. And uh, and then, for example, uh, I as I continued doing uh, or looking for pieces that had um, lyrics, I came upon um, a setting of the um, Lanting Shu by uh, Wang Xijie, and there the it's, it's an interesting text, but. When I when I started setting it to music and playing it with music, it really became alive, and I, I just loved it. I, it made me love the, the the music more, and made me love the lyrics more or the, the words more. Uh, another example would be uh, there's a setting of the Heart Sutra from late Ming Dynasty, and um, when I was memorizing that, because I cannot I cannot playing the chin, you have to look at your hands. And you have, if you want to, if you want to sing while you're playing, you have to memorize poems. You can't read and, and sing like like we often do in the West, or I can't anyway. And I would be, I had to memorize. In order to do this, I had to memorize the Heart Sutra, which was great fun. Like while I'm riding a bicycle, and wondering what happens to people if they get hit by a truck while reciting the Heart Sutra. Anyway, um, so I, I. Uh, that's that my love for, for the poetry it i mean there's a there's a basic interest and enjoyment of it but it really becomes a love when i pair it with the music that's basically it thank you thank you yeah so now it's about the 10 o'clock and we are heading towards uh, the, the end now and but the next person uh, next speaker, Professor Jonathan, who contributed uh, uh, an exciting ep three episodes, uh, two episodes on the, on prosody, the rhyme book and prosody. Professor Starling, please. No, thank you so much, Songxi. You know, I'll get to answer your question about where this all begins, but. It, it was actually in going to University of Illinois and meeting, you know, seeing um, Charlie and Bill for the first time. It was during the, the the conference that produced the first of the How to Read Chinese Poetry. I was still an early graduate student at University at Buffalo at the time. It was a really meaningful uh, couple of days that I was able to kind of be a fly on the wall on that early meeting. And I, I don't know, but looking back on it, you know, that it was such an authoritative wonderful textbook it in a way i think it gave me a, a release to 
to continue to follow a path that that had led me to that moment. Zongqi had invited me even as a graduate student because I worked on the, the work of Ernest Finolosa. And my arguments were that Finolosa was onto something in the Meiji period, that he had an understanding of recitation and even in song, um, because he would have been practicing it through the 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 um the Japanese style. Uh, and his tutors were teaching him in a kind of cosmological prosody concepts. And so my my feeling was that he had a very strong schematic understanding of the relationship of prosody to the body and to the social imaginary. And the Ezra Pound had cut that out, not only out of um, his notebooks, which he did do and excised them. And my work with Hans Sasse and so on kind of shows that um, that record. But he actually excised them from English for what, what I what I consider to be a whole century. And so I've really been interested from, you know, from an early age uh, to to try to restore and create if if even in a somewhat forced way at sometimes, hopefully not anymore, um, a space, a space to bring over the prosodic information system that is uh, Chinese uh, classical poetics and to, to help English do what Japanese was able to do through a similar process of um, retrofitting uh, and you know, basically rebuilding Japanese such that it can function as a medium of classical Chinese poetic composition and, and recitation. English is much easier than Japanese, um, but it is much more similar to Vietnamese and Korean in this way. And so um, so I'll stop there for a moment and uh, and just thank you, you know, Zhongqi, and thank you all, you know, for um, for, you know, that that formative moment and for the work you do. And to release a person like me from having to feel like I, I need to to do more of the kinds of work everyone else is doing because it's it's so rich and it's so full and I can continually point my students to all of your work and um, and without it you know there I, I could never swerve left like this and spend a career trying to build in the space between English and Chinese such that we could maybe do a few new things um, uh, to go back to recover what I think of as a sort of lost trajectory from the Meiji forward and so my own beginning with Chinese was as an adolescent, my first Chinese tutor um, had me memorize uh, a good number of Tang, Tang poems, even as, you know, 13, 14 year old and to translate them. I was a poet at that time already, and I enjoyed translating them. I enjoyed memorizing them. And over time, you know, they become that seed that just stays there. We change, but, you know, but it, the poems don't, they, they open up and, um, and that, that was really important to me, but when I heard Yin Song for the first time, my father, my stepfather and father both um, practiced Tai Chi Chuan, but my stepfather taught Qigong. And so I grew up in a, in a family that um, that appreciated the psychophysiological aspects of, of, um, uh, of a number of systems of Qigong and Tai Chi and Bagua, Xingyis and Neigong, internal, um, internal martial arts forms. So when I heard you know, Yin Song the first time, I was like, this is, this is great. You know, this is where, um, even if it has to be reimagined, even if the oral tradition is, isn't continuous, it is in a sense, in a kind of general casual way, potentially unbroken. It's just not written, codified. And so I went to, to China in the, in the uh, early 2000s to try to get people on the record to talk about Yin Song, um, professors at Beida and Renmin and, and, uh, um, uh, a number of of great 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 Beijing schools. No one would go on the record because no one 
felt like their knowledge constituted real knowledge. It was just sort of something you know maybe about how to do, but you don't really talk about it. Um, but but I was given some CDs by Qigong, the great calligrapher, and he did expound at great length on um, on on recitation theory. And luckily, you know, in graduate school, I also was able to find Parker Huang's wonderful Cantonese and Mandarin recitations of a good number of of Tang Shi and Si and and so it was in that process that um, that the that the videos podcasts that that I did for the series kind of emerged out of. Uh, just a, a lifelong, so it's now 25 years going um, to try to build a system of uh, Sino-English so that we can spread compositional theory and, and sort of tap into the Sino-poetic imaginary that I think has been such a crucial and interesting part of this of the of the history and the continued future of um, of, of of participating in a way of thinking and being in the world that I think is absolutely. A part of the work everyone is doing, but but I was hoping we could do it, as it were, not through translation. Though anyone who knows my work as a translation archivist um, and uh, you know and, and scholar, translation is very important to me. But I do see it as you know as not the only way um, to 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 try to connect languages through the poetic traditions that this podcast so beautifully illuminated. Um, not just for me, but for so many. So it's a, a great pleasure. And next next week will be the um, the ceremony for the Newman Prize for English Trade U. And we have winners uh, who are writing beautiful uh, regulated verse from uh, from Russia, uh, the UK, uh, EU, China, Australia, and a number of of American states. And these are folks that have, you know that never met me, <laughs> you know, just seeing a couple videos and and uh, working it out. And I I, I think that's. You know, it bodes well for regulated verse culture as a whole to continue to grow and to expand through through languages. And we're just so lucky in English that we have 8,000 monosyllables to work with. Uh, it's just serendipity that this is possible at all. So anyway, it's been an honor. And uh, and it's only the last thing, you know, I made those videos. It's the first time I ever bought the cameras and did all that work. I learned a whole lot and all the hard way, I assure you. And I wish I could do it again. Uh, I would be much better at it the second time around, I'm sure. But thank you for that extra push. And Heidi, thank you too. Yeah. Thank you very much. And by the way, and we are all impressed with the high quality of your video. And even though probably it's uh, your first attempt, but it's uh, wonderful. The results are wonderful. Yeah. Okay. So in terms of the order of the episode, so the next speaker should be Dr. Maja Samay, and she contributed actually uh, two topics. One is on Tang Woman, the other is the, the, the short song lyrics, but she could not make it. And here I would like to thank her, uh, thank her for the wonderful contribution. So next we move to Xinda, Professor Lian, please. Okay, thank you, yeah. I like grand finale because I'm a party goer. Uh, I cannot remember how I learned to like Chinese poetry, but I can say that uh, every time I met people who could compose Chinese poems in a classical form, I admire them very much and with some wonder. The reason was that I could not do the same trick, but 
after I got myself involved in this how to read Chinese poetry project, uh, first the book, then the podcast, I suddenly realized that even though I should admire those spontaneous genius who could compose classical poetry, I did not need to envy them because my ignorance allowed me an advantage or to be more serious and more exact. My unfamiliarity with the artifice of the classical Chinese poetry charged me with curiosity and gave me a fresher insight into this art. And this brings me to my experience with this How to Read Chinese Poetry project. Yeah, both the publication of the book and the recently released uh, podcast. The project has truly taught me how to read Chinese poetry from working together with and listening to so many admirable can contributors uh, to the project. I have learned many things, yeah. And I believe the most important thing I learned from this project is the power of close reading. Yeah, what we have been doing proves that the beauty and appeal of classical Chinese poetry is not some mysterious ethos that is elusive and ineffable. We tried to, to examine poetic works carefully to see how they were created and how they work on us. Nothing short of an exercise of reverse engineering. Uh, the, the purpose of our close reading is to, to ask the ancient poets, yeah, why do you do what you do? Or how do you do it? And I guess according to the stubborn Chinese tradition, yeah, they would all answer, I do not know why I do what I do. Yeah. But that is not our answer. Yeah. Uh, we truly yeah, want to know why and how yeah, uh, these ancient poets yeah, do what they do. And yeah, we believe that unexplained beauty arouses an irritation in all of us, the participants of this project. Yeah. The impact of our project, I believe, will be felt in our classrooms. Yeah. I say this for a reason. Uh, let me explain with an example. Yeah. I once shared with my students uh, a true story that I learned from a friend. Yeah. My friend was a student of poetry years ago. And once uh, students were made to analyze Li Bai's Chang'an Yi Pian Yue, Wan Hu Dao Yi Sheng. Yeah. While the majority, my friend told me, while the majority of the class followed the accepted consensus that this is about the moonlight spreading over the city of Chang'an, a tiny voice from one corner of the classroom insisted that Yi Pian Yue is just a piece of jade hanging in the night sky like a slice of watermelon. Yeah. And have my students not being firm, firm believers of close reading, they will not understand this. Yeah. But we tried to bring 
sensible explanations to both interesting readings of Levi's lines. Yeah. And this makes me think that our effort is truly worthwhile. And I believe I have already told you, I have just told you how I learned to like Chinese poetry. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I think this uh, concludes uh, the, the segment uh, of uh, experience sharing uh, segment. And Professor, since Professor Fang already spoke at the very beginning of this segment. So again, anyone have forgotten? Because I'm look, not looking at the script. So always the fear of leaving out someone. Someone I have left, left out? Okay, no. So let's move, move on to watch a, a demo. And before we watch the demo, and I would like to make a suggestion. I want to, in addition to putting the today's event on the website, and we may produce some mini short videos featuring your lifelong engagement or your experience. And your stories are really exciting, touching, and inspirational. Yeah. So of course, if you are not happy with uh, tonight's uh, audio effect or the video effect, we can suddenly do it again. And, but I think it will be very fun and also very, very inspirational for the Chinese poetry learner, Chinese language learner, and also would be a Chinese poetry learner. Okay, so now let's move on to the more exciting part. And I hope you will like that, the, the, the demo, the eight minute demo that shows us how effortlessly on your side in many ways, we can turn them, convert them into video. Again, I would like to express my thanks uh, to the talented video team. And you, well, let's see, I would not say anything. Let's begin. Let's play. Today, Professor Ninhauser will present his last episode. Let us welcome Professor Ninhauser. The Book of Poetry, a Pian to Zhou Dynasty Building. The final poem to be examined, Mian, Woven and Unbroken. It's a number 237, but it's one of the odes in the Daya, our greater old section, depicts the founding of the Zhou Dynasty, particularly the exploits of the grandfather of the first ruler a man known to us as Bugong Danfu, a name that could be translated as the ancient Duke Danfu. There are other understandings, but we don't need to go into that. <clears throat> he moved the Zhou people who were originally inhabitants of a small state during the Shang Dynasty, away from the nomadic lifestyle that was their early tradition into the area in the Southern Shanxi, preparing the way for his grandson to conquer the Shang sometime around 1050 before the current era. The most detailed account of his life and rule can be found in the basic annals of Zhou, uh, Zhou Banji in Sima Qian's Shiji, Records of the Grand Scribe. 
and there we read, the ancient Duke Danfu again cultivated the enterprise to establish the Zhou Dynasty, an enterprise of his ancestors, Oji and Gongliu. He accumulated virtue and carried out justice. The people of the capital all supported him. When the Shunyu and the Rongdi attacked him, these two groups were non-Han peoples living in what is now modern Shanxi and Shanxi. When they attacked him, desiring to obtain wealth and goods, he gave it to them. When they attacked, desiring to obtain his territory and his people, the people were all angry and wanted to give battle. The ancient duke said, the people enthrone a lord in order that he will bring benefits to them. Now the reason the Rongi are attacking and battling us is to take my territory and people. For the people to be with me or for them to be with the, those others, what is the difference? The people want to give battle because of me, but I cannot bear to allow people's fathers and sons to be killed in order to keep myself their Lord. Thus he left Bin, his capital, with his personal attendants, crossed the Qi and Ju rivers, transversed Mount Liang, and stopped at the foot of Mount Qi. Every person in Bin, holding up their elders and carrying their children, again submitted themselves to Danfu at the foot of Mount Qi. When other neighboring states learned of the ancient duke's humanity, many indeed submitted to him. At this, the ancient duke then abandoned the customs of the Rongi, built city walls and residences, and settled the people in various cities. He appointed officials for the five offices. The people put all this to song and music to praise his virtue. So that's the Shirji text. The song they sang is this number 237 in woven and unbroken. The poem is a long poem. It's primarily fu or exposition. So that is to say uh, narrative sort. And it, but it begins with a comparison. Woven. Woven and unbroken are the gourds, large and small as the early life of our people. From the Du to the Qi came the ancient honorable Danfu. He dug shelters, he dug caves. They still did not have houses and homes. The ancient honorable Danfu on the next morning drove his horses. Leading them west along the banks of the river, he reached the foot of Mount Qi. Then with the woman Jiang, he came himself to look for places to dwell. The plain of Zhou was so fertile, even bitter celery was like honey. Then he began, then he divined, then he notched our tortoises. They read stay, they read it's time. So he built homes there. And so he was content, and so he stayed. And so he created a left, and so he made a right. And so he set boundaries, and so he made territories. And so he dredged gullies, and so ordered the fields. From the west to the east, everywhere he then took charge of affairs. 
Then he summoned a master of construction. Then he summoned a master of labor, so that they could erect houses and homes. Their plume lines ruled straight. They lashed together planks as earthen molds to build an ancestral temple, reverent and respectful, carrying the earth in crowds and multitudes, throwing it into molds with clamors and shouts, raising walls with a pounding beat, smoothing them with a scraping sound. One hundred walls rose up together, the beating of the workmen could not keep up. So he created the outer gates soaring, soaring the gates so high. So he erected the palace gate, the palace gate so grand. So he erected a great earthen shrine, whereby to parade the wrong captives. Though over time he could not stop the enemy's wrath, still they did no harm to our reputation. He thinned the oaks, he cleared the roads. He frightened away the coon barbarians. Ah, how they panted in exhaustion. To cause the Yu and the Roy to pledge peace, King Wen quickened their yielding natures. I say he brought those estranged to follow him. I say he drew those from front and back to him. I say he caused those with petitions to rush to him. I say he brought his defamers to his defense. Okay, thank you, and I would like to invite you to comment on this demo and and see whether whether or how we should go with proceed with the conversion. And of course, I need some need to catch my breath. I will not be able to get around to it doing it until the end of this year. But I think I appreciate your, your comments and suggestions. Bill, what yeah, do you so think I, of it? Well, I was happy. I was unhappy that you used me as an example with some other experts on charging uh, much bigger experts than me. But luckily, I couldn't figure out my sound for about halfway. So I didn't hear the first part. But I could see it. And, you know, I'm sure people have uh, different ideas uh, about the text and whatever. I don't know. What the hell? You do this. Uh, you know, this is something that I don't exactly do. Uh, but uh, I'd be interested in hearing everybody's comments as long as it's okay. if it's too negative, then I'll just go to bed. Um, okay. <laughs> and the other thing I wanted to talk about, the other thing I wanted to say is when people are talking about why people write uh, I think Shindao was talking about why these poets write poetry. I think the great poets, for me, are always people that are frustrated. I mean, the Chinese okay. say that too. Fafan and, uh, you know, Dufu, Sima Chen. Um, these people are, um, they have some sort of inner, I don't know how to describe it, but uh, frustration that they want right. to somehow alleviate by what they're writing and uh so i don't know um you know a bunch of us that studied with uh, some people have maybe we overread some stuff but i i think a lot of people underread things so 
I'll be very interested in what people have to say. Although I didn't know you were going to use this video. Um, and uh, well, I don't know what else to say, except I, I, I do want to push. I, I yep. found it particularly. Shut I found now. it particularly interesting because I, that was what I mentioned that uh, there's a setting, musical setting of that poem, published in 1521 for Guqin. I've got a recording of that uh, on my website, and and for me, I, I, to see the to see the video that went with it, it bring makes things alive. But so does that music. I think if you if you just listen to the listen to the music while reading the poem. I mean, listen. I can't sing it while I play it. And it's not it's not clear that it was actually sung, but it, it is paired to the music in a way. The lyrics and music are paired in a way that I think is actually quite singable. And, yeah, and I'll, just thing, I'll just say one more thing and then I'll try to shut up. Although I, you know, at this point in the evening. Um what Y.E. said about the connection is not good. Reading them, I I mean, this is uh, influenced uh, by Gao and Mesa Lin's articles, no question. Even though we weren't at Princeton, we still read them. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of that has to do with also um, bringing sound to the poem. So, I mean, that's that's what it's all about, essentially. When you read a Western poem, when I read an English poem, that's what I'm basically interested in. So I had a little bit of a disagreement with Song Chi. I hope you don't get angry. I have a very unimportant but practical question. Uh, there are a lot of music, picture, and video clips used. And I know now nothing is free. So how do we get permission? Yeah, for use. And doesn't it take a lot of money to do that? Well, I think you know, I had the same sort of question, but then now I learned that there are many free databases of footage we could use. My understanding is that and all the footage used here is not copyrighted, right? You know, it is uh, available in free domain. So that really makes it possible. Not only in terms of, of budget, but in terms of the, the time required to make a copyright request. It would be a nightmare. So the time has changed, make it possible for us to produce a, something like this you know, without any royalty fees to, to be paid. Yeah. Good to know. So Bill had a question. I did not quite catch him completely because of poor connection. You want to finish your statement? I think I finished. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Probably. I heard about the disagreement with me, and I'm oh, yeah. and, uh, well, waiting can... to hear well, that I can tell improvement, you. suggestion. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, so we originally uh, we were going to have a, my attempt to present um, classical Chinese pronunciation, you know, Zhou Dynasty pronunciation. Oh, okay, some, yeah. Some kind of uh, 
attempt at that. You know, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I think I, think I remember that. Yeah, I remember. So we had a discussion about that. And um, but since you've been so nice to me ever since, I don't dare complain about anything. Yeah. Well, I, I remember you you dislike uh, the heptosyllabic, the, the choice of that term. That sounds no, uh, very... No, that wasn't what I disliked. I disliked using modern Chinese pronunciation for searching poems. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. I, I still dislike that. Okay, Although well, I'm, I'm yeah, thank you, yeah. And probably well, we, we should record a version of a, of a old classical... Chinese pronunciation when we produce a uh, when we produce the the uh, the video version, we'll be happy to do that. Would that be good for you? Yes, but you should ask somebody other than me to figure this out. Okay, sure. I mean, I'm not not okay. an expert. And and also, I would like to add that we will we'll provide the caption uh, for each episode so that people can really follow exactly if they miss the, uh, our sounds, our speech, they can look at the, the caption. Yeah. Or subtitle. Yeah. Any other suggestion about the, the video uh, production, video conversion of your episode? Of course, uh, we cannot you know, produce a video version of every episode, probably one or two at the most for each topic. So that will make the job more manageable. Yeah. Any comments from the audience? Yeah. Why, please. So I I don't have um any comments on the video per se, I just um, was wondering when you're thinking about public-facing scholarship, whether um, you want to consider the format of, um, of a dialogue or a small group discussion. Because when I was doing the podcast, I thought it was a little bit stiff because we prepared a script and we read it out basically, right? And um, try to basically uh, not sound too stiff or too academic. I, I don't know how far we succeeded, but that, that was the point. But I thought there's something nice about conversation when people are a little bit more spontaneous and, uh, you know, you can take a poem and have people argue about how to read it. Of course, you have to choose people who are not out there to prove how smart they are. And, and that's also a challenge sometimes. I mean, the spirit of this cannot be too competitive, but really a, a good discussion of just discussing how, how you read and I think that may be interesting too. I don't. I don't know that we need to show videos. I mean, you know, we're just regular human beings. But an an audio like that, audio things like that may be interesting. I am. I, I. You know, this is just a format that you may want to consider. I'm just offering that as a suggestion. Thank you. And actually, we entertain that idea, but I find it almost impossible logistically. So we have to sit in the same room to for a good effect. So no, no, we, we can we can do it via Zoom. Eileen and I really? did it for Hong for weeks. It's, it actually works quite well. Oh really? Okay. Yeah. Send me the sample and then what we will consider and probably we'll do uh, some kind of a dialogues on certain topics. That's an excellent idea. Yeah.
Jonathan, please. Yeah, this this was something in working on the video podcast. Uh, I was really concerned about it being an audio podcast because my first version of this was a written script, which would have been better because in audio, you might want to have a lot more rigor and tightness in the structure. And whereas video is so much more dynamic. And so I had to scrap the first version and just, you know, just kind of speak like I was talking to my class right to to the audience directly and so I think that's why is one other possibility is you know in in getting to that casualness is just speaking contemporaneously um you know it, and the video does allow for that uh, you know and at first it was a little bit awkward but you know I think that's a, another possibility is to just go off script and you know tell tell the stories and unpack the poems and so on that way. But I I would second Wai's idea. Actually, when when you first asked me about the podcast, I was like, oh, podcasts are usually conversations. I can't wait for you know Tongji's going to have these really tough questions for me, and you know what I got I got nervous. <laughs> yeah. I got really excited thinking about what it would be like to be in conversation with you Tongji or any of you actually. So I, I also think that that's a really you know really. There's a lot of appetite, I think, to have all of you in conversation with each other. Uh, I would listen avidly to any of that, you know. So I think that's another avenue for expanding the um, expanding this world, you know, that you're already working on, Songji. Yeah. So I like that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. We'll certainly look into that. Yeah. And actually, in terms of. Uh, I think every one of you must have thought about how much time you have to spend on this kind of video conversion. I think there are different models to follow. One is to you do not have to do anything, and we just use some of the online pictures. It's just like the the one we use here in the demo and the beginning and the end. Then we'll match the images with your talk as much as we can so that's the uh, the least you know the the time consuming the least time consuming but if you can provide some video clips for the beginning and ending that will look nicer and then if you are not happy with the current script you can provide a new script and then you can appear in the middle of the video as well. Of course, you know, no one has, none of you have to do it. And if you don't feel like doing it, then, then we just have, we can just scrap this idea. And, but I think in terms of impact, I would say the audience is at least 10 times or more larger. Just think about uh, several video episodes. Uh, say uh, on the average, uh, the number of plays, so number of plays is more than ten thousand. So altogether, uh, the podcast added together, both on the uh, on Shima Shimalayasan and also the Anchor Apple Podcast. All of them combined is probably at the most forty thousand. Uh, so the video is much more impactful medium, medium, yeah. So these are the things uh, you can we can continue to discuss. Yeah. yeah. 
I think probably time is, uh, we're running out. Uh, any other question, any other comments? Again, and I will read uh, my heartfelt thanks uh, to your support and your participation and for your excellent idea suggestions at, at tonight's uh, gathering. So, so if nothing else, then the goodbye to everyone. And uh, and good night to most of you. Yeah, good night to both of you. Yeah, yeah. Great to see you all. Good, great to see you all. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And Andrew, Andrew, Andrew just reminded me that we are neighbors now. Oh, okay, it's uh, how Ohio neighbors. Yeah. Yeah, Granville, Ohio. Yes, it's it's funny. All all across the world, I'm writing to people, and then it turns out. That this professor is just across the hill from me, the next hill over. So very nice to see you. Unbelievable. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Oh. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. 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 bye.